Well, good morning, sisters and brothers. Uh, can I get you to turn with me back, to, back with me to 2 Samuel chapter 5 uh, in your Bibles or devices or order of service? Um, 2 Samuel chapter 5, and let me lead us in prayer as we look at this passage together. Our Heavenly Father, thank you uh, that you speak to us uh, by your Spirit through your Word. Uh, and thank you um, uh, that you've been speaking to us as your word was read. And we pray now that as we uh, look at this passage together, uh, your spirit will um, be strengthening me to preach your word in, in his power. Uh, and we pray that your spirit would be the one uh, at work in each, each one of our lives, um, opening us up to your word, uh, and that, uh, that you would be drawing people uh, to Jesus. And so help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Jerusalem is a very special place, isn't it? How many people have been to Jerusalem? Just put up your hand, just out of interest. Anyone been to Jerusalem? Okay, a few people, huh? All right. You know, I used to think, hey, no, you need to go to Jerusalem. Ah, go to New Jerusalem. I go to New Jerusalem. All right. Uh, but uh, after going, I actually changed my mind. It's quite good. Right? Uh, with the right guide, it's certainly worth a visit. Helps you to see the geographic background uh, more clearly. Uh, so you can read the Bible. When you read the Bible, it's, it's, uh, you get bit more of an idea uh, on, the, on the geography. It helps us. Right? But whether or not we've been there, we know Jerusalem's a special place. It's the place where Jesus died for our sins to reconcile us to God. Uh, it's the place where he rose again, uh, showing that he is indeed God's promised king. It's a center point from which the gospel went out to all the world. So it's a very special place. But it's also a very old place. Uh, it's probably a place where Genesis calls Salem, where Melchizedek ruled uh, in, uh, in uh, Abraham's time. Uh, one of the hills there was Moriah, uh, where Abraham nearly offered his son Isaac. Uh, and by the time of our passage, a thousand years later, we've got this, uh, after Abraham, we've got these people called the Jebusites, uh, who have been living in Jerusalem for a very long time. Uh, but today, we will see it changing hands in accordance with God's plans and promises. Because God's promised king will reign from God's chosen place. We are now in ancient Israel, a thousand years before Christ. A few years before this, Saul, the king, was killed in battle by the Philistines. And David, to whom God had promised the kingship, became king of his tribe, the tribe of Judah, uh, and set up his capital in Judah at a place called Hebron. Right, if you look at the map that's coming up on the screen, you see, you, you see Hebron uh, in the red there. There's the Judah where David is controlled the, down the bottom there. Okay? The rest of Israel is up the north. You see that? Right? Uh, and so the other tribes, northern ones, have all gone with Ishbosheth, uh, which is Saul's surviving son. Uh, and we saw uh, a bloody civil war that was triggered uh, last week, right? Uh, and uh, in fact, last week we saw three chapters complete with violence, treachery, and all those things uh, that are in that war. And towards the end of the war, Ishbosheth was assassinated, but not on David's orders. And when the culprits came to him, David even sentenced them to death for Ishbosheth's murder. Because God had promised that David would be king over all Israel, and David trusted God's promises, and he would not sin, and he would not be associated with sin in order to try and bring that about. Eventually, however, the northern tribes decide to accept David as king. Right? He doesn't conquer them, they approach him. Uh, in fact, They've been secretly planning to do that even before Ishbosheth was murdered. Uh, and so in chapter 5, verse 1, uh, they come to David at Hebron 
uh, and they say to him three things. First of all, they're not foreigners to each other. Right? They say, behold, we are your bone and flesh. Back in the law of Moses, book of Deuteronomy, chapter 17, verse 15, God had said that an Israelite king must be an Israelite. Right? One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. David is actually one of their people. Right? So he has their own flesh and blood. And secondly, they remember that even when Saul was king over them, David used to lead their battles. Uh, back in Saul's time, they say in verse 2, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. Uh, back in 1 Samuel 18.13, uh, we saw that Samuel actually had made Saul the commander, hey, sorry, Saul had made David the commander of a thousand. So David actually went into battle for the Israel, and he came back victorious for them, and they loved him for it. So David under Saul had already proven himself to be both faithful and capable in representing his people, particularly representing his people in battle. And thirdly, they remembered God's promise to David. End of verse 2. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. Right? The word shepherd implies both leadership and care. And the word prince implies that the true king is God himself. David would be the shepherd king of Israel under God. That was God's promise. So David fit God's criteria. He had proven himself faithful, and most importantly, he had God's promise. And the elders wanted him not just to be king of Judah, but to be their king, the king of all Israel. And so in verse 3, David made a covenant with them at Hebron, with the elders of Israel at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. In the New Testament, Jesus, the son of David, was king of the Jews right before the northern tribes came in. Remember that? Day of Pentecost, uh, news of his reign went to the Jews in Jerusalem and Judea, which corresponds to the Judah of David's time. Of course, no, not everyone accepted him as king. Uh, just the true Israelites, the true spiritual children of Abraham, the true sheep to which uh, his voice came. Uh, because, you know, in Israel, there's always been an outward Israel by name, by polity, by biological descent. And then as a subset of that, the true Israel, the ones who are truly trusting God. But it was the Jews, the tribe of Judah, first ones who believed, came in the day of Pentecost, right? entered the kingdom. And a little bit later on in the book of Acts, what happens? The gospel goes out to the Samaritans the people from the northern kingdom. And the true Israelites from there also believe and enter in the kingdom. Of course, the gospel then goes to the Gentiles. Now, that's a different story. And the important thing today is how David prefigures his greater son. Right? Just as the Jews recognize the kingship of Jesus first, then the people of all Israel. David is king of Judah first, then of all Israel. And then there are other similarities as well. David could be the candidate to lead Israel because he was their flesh and blood. Hebrews 2 tells us that Jesus took flesh and blood so that he could fight for us against the devil. So that he could be one of us and do that. Uh, David went out for, to war for Israel and came back victorious. Jesus went out and did battle for us on the cross. Came back victorious in his resurrection. And we love him for it. God promised David to make him the shepherd prince of Israel, ruling under him. Jesus is God's promised shepherd king who lovingly rules us under the Father. But there is one big difference. Look at verse 4 and 5. 
David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. Now, that's impressive. That's a long reign. But Jesus is the king who reigns forever and ever, whose kingdom will never come to an end. And that, my friends, is even better. The next section in our passage is about David's city. Remember, David is based in, in Hebron, right? But now that he's king over all Israel, he needs a capital they can all identify with. And so in verse 6, he decides to attack the Jebusites, uh, the, inheritance, the, the inhabitants of the land who had settled, as I said earlier, in, in, in what we know as Jerusalem. Right? Have a look at Jerusalem on the map. Uh, and if you look at Jerusalem on the map, you can see it's a pretty good place uh, to, to, to have a capital for a united monarchy. Right? Uh, now, tell me a bit about those Jebusites who were living there. Back in Genesis 15, uh, God had promised Abraham that one day he would punish the Jebusites and give his descendants, Abraham's descendants, their land. In Deuteronomy, the Jebusites were one of the Canaanite tribes that God actually commanded to be exterminated from the land, but the job hadn't been finished by the time of Joshua. Uh, their stronghold was on a hill, it was heavily fortified, made it very hard to attack. Uh, that's why they can taunt David in verse 6, and they say, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off. In other words, we are so well protected that you can even send blind and lame people to the war to fight you, huh? <laughs> they'll still win. Right? Not very sensitive to lame and blind people, is it? Right? But David took the city. The weak point seems to be the water shaft in verse 8 that brings the water supply up to the city. And if our translation is right, and there's some doubt about that, but if the translation is right, then David sent men up the water shaft, which would have been very daring indeed, and penetrated the city's defenses. Turning the taunt back on them, he calls their, their hated defenders, right, the, the Jebusites who fought against them and tried to warn him off, he calls them the blind and the lame in verse 8. Uh, and therefore, verse 8, it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house, right? possibly barring surviving Jebusites from the royal palace. Now, understood rightly, I think David is not actually speaking against disabled people or barring them from coming into his house. Right? In chapter 9, he's going to bring a, a lame, man in, lame man into his palace to always eat at his table. And while he was, what he was doing, he was throwing the Jebusite words back at them. Right, calling their fighting men, the lame and the blind, because that's what they said, I think he's a bit loose with his tongue. Lah. And that would have consequences. By the time of Jesus, it would seem that this, together with the requirements of Leviticus that the priests uh, should not be disabled, had morphed into the prohibition of the blind and the lame people from entering the temple. Right? It might have looked like development, but actually what, that wasn't God's intention. But remember what happened in our New Testament reading? The blind and the lame came to Jesus in the temple. And he healed them. Right, to the indignation of the temple authorities. If he healed them outside the temple, then they came in, there'd be no problem. But he let them come into him, in the temple, and then healed them there. The harm that was done through David, speaking too loosely, was ultimately corrected by his greater son. But let us take care to be careful and considerate when we speak, lest we cause harm to others, even unintentionally, with our tongues. The Jebusite stronghold that David conquered was taken over 
and called the City of David. All right? That's not to be confused with Bethlehem. Sometimes we call that the City of David for other reasons. All right? uh, completely different. Uh, now, when we say city, it's actually just a small area on a steep hill, which is now part of the big city of Jerusalem. Right? If you see that picture there, all these pictures are from the ESV Study Bible, by the way. Okay? Uh, you see this picture here? That there is the, it's what you call the City of David. You see, up, further up there, that's where the temple was going to be later. Okay? Jerusalem, now, it's wow, this whole area here. But it's just, just a small area there. But at that time, that was Jerusalem. Uh, and David settles there, and in verse 9, he builds a city all around from the Milo inwards, right? The Milo there not being a chocolatey drink, uh, but rather artificial terraces uh, on, which the, uh, on a steep hill, right? Where the, where the houses are built. So if you go to Jerusalem today, do pay a visit to the city of David. It's now excavated. It's now an archaeological and tourist site. But from his base there, David became, verse 10, greater and greater. For the Lord of hosts, that is the God of armies, the mighty God who fights for his people, was with him. And even his neighbors can see what's happening. One of them, Hiram, uh, king of Tyre, was really supportive. In verse 11, uh, he sends messengers to David and cedar trees and carpenters and masons who build David a house. Uh, he's got a, a palace comes up. Now, David actually is going to think about this house of cedar in chapter 7 and compare it to the dwelling of God, which is in a tent, which will trigger thoughts about him building a temple. And we will meet Hiram again uh, in 1 Kings when Solomon actually builds the temple, and Hiram again supplies the wood and the craftsmen. But for now, David's increasing greatness is not a cause for pride or arrogance. Rather, it assures him of two things, which we see in verse 12. Uh, firstly, that it was really God who made him king. Uh, verse 12, he says, And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel. Uh, David had done the right thing. He had not taken the kingship in an unethical way. He trusted God. God made him king. And now God is blessing his kingship. Uh, he knows for certain that this is from the Lord. Uh, and we also know that Jesus' kingship comes from the Father, isn't it? He didn't grasp at it sinfully, right? Uh, Satan offered him a shortcut, he didn't take. Uh, instead, he was obedient unto death, even death on the cross. And God raised him from the dead to publicly and powerfully declare him uh, to be the Son of God, that is the true King. And exalting him on high. And his kingdom is spreading as he's being made known around the world. His house is being built by people from all nations. And God has established him as king over all the world. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. And brothers and sisters in Christ, the day will come when we too reign with Christ. Now, don't ask me what it looks like, I don't know. But the Bible tells us that we will. And that will be because of God and His promises and His grace, not because of our own dealings and schemings. And even now, there will be times when God gives us a degree of responsibility in His church or in His world. 
For each of us will be different. But don't you ever sin in order to get that for yourself. Do what is right. And if the Lord wills, he will establish you for a time. And if he does, then you can only say that, then you can say that you're only in that position because the Lord puts you there. And don't be, and so you won't be arrogant or prideful about it. But you can use it to serve him. Which brings us to the second thing that David realized. Uh, David knew at the end of verse 12 that God had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. David was God's king, but it wasn't just about him. The Lord had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. And so he knew he must rule under God for the good of his people. When Jesus came, he came as the servant king. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He's the king who loves us and rules us for our good, even though we may not understand it sometimes. His kingship is for the sake of his people. And brothers and sisters, to whatever measure God entrusts responsibility to us, we are to exercise that responsibility for the sake of the people we serve. We're not given responsibility so that we can lord it over others, but so that we can love and serve others as best we can under God. That doesn't necessarily mean giving everyone what they want. It's probably not possible. And in the end, we obey God rather than man, but it does mean that we seek to act for the good of others as revealed in God's word. Jesus said, whoever would be great among us must be the servant of all. And our leaders ought to exemplify this. We're still looking at David in Jerusalem. And the last thing the narrator tells us there leaves us with some questions. Verse 13. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he had come from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. Now, on, on the one hand, this seems to be an example of greatness, right? He's got more concubines, more wives, more children. Uh, that befits greatness in a way that's consistent with kings of his time. Yet, on the other hand, it makes us a little bit worried. Uh, not only do we know about God's ideal for marriage from Genesis 2, but we've read some very explicit statements about the king in Deuteronomy 17. In Deuteronomy 17, which we quoted earlier, God warns that the king should not acquire many horses for himself, he should not have many wives, lest his heart turn away. And he shouldn't acquire for himself excessive silver or gold. Now, David didn't really do any of those things, except maybe the wives. But then, how many is too many, right? And the warning then is, lest your heart turn away. David always kind of guarded his heart. Maybe he, he didn't turn away. So, maybe it's okay. Well... Maybe it is, but the narrator doesn't make any comment against it. Right? It seems to flow with all the positive things that he's saying about David. But then read the next verse, verse 14. And these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem, 
Shamua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibha, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphalet. Now, which name stands out to you? Solomon, isn't it? Yeah. Solomon was David's son who took over as king. Solomon's already in our, already in our heads, right, as readers, because we know Solomon built the house of the Lord with the cedar wood and the craftsmen from King Hiram of Tyre. God established Solomon just like he established David. Solomon followed his father in loving and obeying God, but where David took more wives, Solomon took many, many more. Where David took wives from Jerusalem, Solomon took wives from foreign nations. Where David sailed into the gray area of Deuteronomy 17, Solomon clearly defied it. All three of those things. There is a danger, isn't there? When you go close to the edge, even if you don't tip over, because the next generation might consider that as the starting point for going further, and they fall headlong off the cliff. Our parents, leaders, teachers, let us be careful of the trajectory we set for the next generation. David was a good king, man after God's own heart. He didn't fall. Well, he fell, but he didn't fall in the end. But even he is not safe to follow without reservation. How much less the leaders and rulers of today. But Jesus always did what is right from the heart, and it is always safe to follow him. Well, the last section in chapter 5 concerns David's victories over the Philistines. In verse 17, when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, they all go up to search for David. David hears of their plans and he goes down to the stronghold, maybe his new stronghold in the city of David. Uh, and in verse 18, the Philistines come and they spread out in the valley of Raphaim, which is just a few kilometers southwest of Jerusalem. It's like from here to Bangsa. Right? Uh, and then David does what Saul failed to do. He inquires of the Lord. Not told how he does that, but he does. He asks in verse 19, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord answers, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. So David goes up, head to head with them, and he defeats them. And he says in verse 20, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. And so the name of the place is called Baal Perazim, which means the Lord of the bursting through, the Lord of the breaking out. David knows that even though he's the one who went and fought, actually, it's actually God's victory. God is the one who defeated the enemies. And you know, the Philistines there, in verse 21, they abandon their idols and run away, and so David and his men carry them off. And so God's king not only defeats his enemies, but also captures their idols, brings them to public disgrace. Jesus, the son of David, defeated our enemies on the cross. Now, Colossians 2, 13-15 tells us that God forgave all our transgressions by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. What did he do? He took our record of debt, 
and he nailed it to the cross. Jesus died there, paying that debt. And so because Jesus died to pay the debt of sin, he died under God's punishment on our behalf, and then it says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. With the debt of sin cancelled, they cannot fight against the same God. Nothing holds us anymore. And as God shamed the Philistine idols through David, God shamed the spiritual forces of evil through Jesus. But that's not the end of the Philistine story. Verse 22, they come up yet again, spread out in the valley of Raphaim. Now, David could have gone out to fight again. Looks the same as last time. Let's do the same thing. But instead, verse 23, he once again inquires of the Lord. He does not take God's plan for granted. Good thing too, because this time God says something different. Last time, David's victory seemed natural. Well, actually it was from God. This time, there'll be an unmistakable supernatural element to it. But first, David's got to go around the outside, from the back, and approach him from the other side, right? The way they're not expecting. God says, verse 23, You shall not go up, go around their rear, come up against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the top of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself. For then the Lord has gone before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. When he hears the sound of marching coming up from the top of the trees, right? then David knows that God's army is fighting for him. Strike down the army of the Philistines. That is his cue. But it's not, a cue not to be, it's not his cue to be passive, but to go and fight. Right? And so verse 25 says, David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Giza, which is an even bigger victory than uh, Jonathan achieved in 1 Samuel. Our friends, David in his victory points forward again to Jesus who defeated sin and Satan. Uh, and yet, actually, our war with him is not yet over, right? Uh, Jesus is God's anointed king who leads his people in battle. We still fight together with him, under him, in his strength. Uh, Ephesians tells us to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might because our battle also is not against flesh and blood but against the spiritual forces of evil. The sword we wield is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. God is with us as we go out to fight against Satan by sharing the gospel with people. And God works supernaturally in people's hearts as we speak the word to them. Ultimately, God is the one who gives the victory as people are saved from Satan's realm and come into the kingdom. See, through Jesus, the son of David, the spiritual forces of evil were decisively defeated. And through us, his people, his army, the gospel goes out. People are rescued from the enemy's clutches as they believe in Jesus. So you've got to fight, lah by telling people the gospel, even as God does the rescuing for salvation. Sometimes it will look natural, but we know actually God is at work. Sometimes the supernatural will be obvious. But either way, God is the one who gives the victory. And the fact that God gives the victory doesn't mean we can be passive. Right? God could have just defeated the Philistines himself. David can just sit in a stronghold now. But that's not God's plan. Uh, and likewise, God can bring people into the kingdom without us, but that's not usually his plan. When we recognize God is fighting for us, it's not our cue to be idle, but to fight.
So if you believe that God is sovereign, then get out there and lovingly share the gospel. But no matter how many times we do it, must never be presumptuous. Jesus prayed to his heavenly Father. And so must we as we follow him. Let us come before God, before each battle, seek his wisdom, his blessing, and his power. For in the end we have no hope against the enemy, except when God fights on our behalf. Well, friends, in 1 Samuel 5, we have seen David's reign, we've seen David's city, we've seen David's victory. We know they point forward to Christ, his reign, his city, his victory. Let me end by going back to the city. David took Jerusalem from the Jebusites and made it his own. And so it became the seat from which God's king ruled over God's people. In the New Testament, you and I, who trust in Jesus, we are citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem, the place from which Jesus, God's king, rules over his people. And that Jerusalem from which he reigns, the Jerusalem which is above, that is our spiritual home, even now. We belong there. But one day, we will be there not just spiritually, but in person. That Jerusalem will, in Revelation 21, to come down out of heaven from God. And the king will have not a plethora of wives and concubines, but his one precious bride, the church, beautifully adorned for her husband. And so, brothers and sisters, we will ever be with our victorious, anointed, beloved king. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus is our perfect king. Thank you that he died for us to pay the penalty of our sins, to rescue us from sin and Satan and death and hell. Thank you that you raised him from the dead and so declared him powerfully to be your chosen king. We thank you that his kingdom is growing over all the world as people come to believe in him. And we thank you that he's such a wonderful shepherd king who loves us, died for us, guards us, guides us, protects us and leads us. Please help us, we pray, to love and follow him. And thank you that we can do that without reservation. Please help us to trust your promises for us, whatever they may be, and not resort to taking things into our own hands by sinning to achieve our goals. Please help us to use whatever measure of responsibility that you have given us, whether in church or the workplace or at home or wherever, to serve you and to serve others. Please help us to be mindful of how our actions will affect others, especially those who look to us for leadership. 
and help us not to lead them in the wrong direction by our words or our actions, even if it's unintentional. Please help us to work with you for the salvation of others by lovingly telling them the gospel. And please help us to keep coming before you day by day, seeking your wisdom and your blessing for the things that are before us, and never thinking that we can do things without you. Please help us, we pray, to press forward in faith as we wait for the day when we will be with our King in the new Jerusalem to love him and enjoy him forever. Keep us faithful to him now as we await that day. And we ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.